Welcome to the Aquatic Mammals Journal Historical Perspectives podcast series. The Historical Perspectives series is an ever-growing body of work that consists of more than a hundred interviews with scientists, researchers, animal trainers, legislators, artists, and more who helped to found and shape the marine mammal field from its beginning and as it continues. I am your host, John Anderson, and today we revisit a conversation that I had with Dr. Stan Kujai in 2015. Dr. Kujai was a professor at the University of Southern Mississippi and director of the Marine Mammal Behavior and Cognition Laboratory. He achieved world-renowned status in multiple disciplines, including comparative psychology, behavioral science, and developmental psychology. His tremendous success in these topics resulted in a legacy of more than 50 masters and doctoral level students working in a variety of fields. Dr. Kujai was a member of numerous scientific advisory boards for organizations focused on marine mammals and was an editor-in-chief of the Oxford University Press Encyclopedia of Marine Mammals Social Behavior. Stan made hundreds of professional presentations around the world and had more than 125 peer-reviewed publications. Stan died in 2016, but his scientific legacy to the developmental and comparative psychology scientific communities include both his own significant body of work and a league of past students and colleagues. He is best remembered for his brilliant mind paired with an enthusiasm and excitement for studying animals. Most individuals involved with marine mammals in their early years followed a circuitous path. Let's listen to how Dr. Kujai's career evolved. Actually, somewhat by accident, I went to graduate school to study child language development and child cognitive development and um, studied kids for many, many years. And then sometime in the mid-80s, Lou Herman got in touch with me and asked me if I was interested in learning more about what he was doing with dolphins, especially dolphin communication, and invited me to visit his lab. I went out there. I was fascinated by what they were doing, both with dolphin communication and with dolphin cognition, and started spending time out at Lou's lab. And for a period of years, I tried to do both. I tried to do child language development and dolphin studies. But over time, my career transformed into focusing primarily, and now almost exclusively, on marine mammals. I asked Dr. Kujai to talk about his lab and associated research projects within the comparative psychology paradigm. Well, it's, it's a lab in which I have a number of really talented graduate students and a number of undergraduate students who are trying to gain research experience. Um, we have a variety of projects um, that we're involved in. They all focus basically on how do, I'm going to focus on dolphins here, but how do dolphins make sense of their world? So that's our overriding question. And so that could be things like communication. And so we work with colleagues um, around the world to um, try and make sense of dolphins' acoustic communication, but also other forms of communication, um, tactile communication, peck rubbing, uh, and peck touches, as you're, you're very familiar with, um, mouthing behaviors, postures, you know, visual displays, things like that. Um, we also look at dolphin cognition. Um, that 
work is primarily done with captive animals. Um, we look at how they can solve novel problems, um, how flexible their problem solving is, whether or not they, they will cooperate with each other. We've also studied beluga whales, um, sea lions, walruses, rough-toothed dolphins. I've done a little bit of work with sperm whales. Um, I've looked at the effects of anthropogenic noise um, on a variety of species in the Gulf of Mexico, including beach whales. Um, also, I have students who have gotten me interested in elephant cognition and, and elephant communication. So we're truly a comparative lab in the sense, although our main focus is bottlenose dolphins, we are interested in how a variety of species make sense of, the wor of their worlds. The advantage of studying captive animals well, I think there are many advantages to studying captive animals. Like, for example, trying to study how dolphin calves learn a communication system, I think is virtually impossible in the wild. Because you have to find the animals, you have to be able to record the calves and the, and, and the other animals in the group. Um, and that's just really difficult with wild animals. Um, I know people try to do that, and I, you know, I tip my hat to them. I think it's, it's an incredible effort, and I, I wish them success, but I think it's so much easier with captive animals um, because you can, you can get these sorts of longitudinal data that you can't get otherwise. Um, in terms of cognitive work, a lot of the stuff that we do is, would be di very difficult to do with wild animals, um, partly because they're, again, they have other things going on in their lives and not necessarily interested in solving these problems that we're that, that we, uh, that we, they're not interested in solving these problems that we design to assess their cognitive skills. Um, and so I think it's difficult. Now, the one trade-off, I mean, you can study communication in both captivity and in the wild. And uh, you can also study play behavior um, in captivity and in the wild. And one of the interesting things I think that's coming out is that a lot of what we're seeing about play behavior and about communication, there, there are pretty strong parallels between captive, some of the captive studies and some of the wild studies. So I think they complement each other really well. I also asked Dr. Kujai how he considered whether a dolphin was happy and healthy. Well, I, I think the study of emotions in animals and humans is, is really difficult. Um, if you look at the, the literature on human emotions, you'll find a, a, a ton of definitions on what, what constitutes an emotion and multiple ways in which you might assess emotions. So when we, and that's with the, with, within our own species in which we can talk to each other about what's going on. So when you're talking about, and first, and now, I, I definitely believe that many animals have emotions. Uh, there are some people who, who would like to argue that animals do not have emotions, I think they definitely do. Whether or not they're like human emotions, who knows? And I don't even think that's relevant. What's relevant is that they have emotions. And part of, I think, again, part of having animals in captivity, and probably part of understanding animals in the wild, is understanding their emotions. Um, I have no doubt that dolphins understand other dolphins' emotional states. They're social animals. Being able to get along and survive in a social group means you can read other animals' emotional states. So dolphins, I, I, I strongly suspect, can do that. We're not very good at reading dolphins' emotional states. You know, trainers and 
people who are around dolphins a lot make statements about dolphins emotions which are probably fairly accurate i mean they know what the animal's moods moods are and behaviors are and so on um, but in terms of saying if an animal is sad or happy or depressed it's it's very very difficult um, what does it mean if i say i'm happy what does it mean if i say you're happy john what does it mean if i say that kathleen's happy okay those the answer to those questions might be very different okay because what makes you happy what makes me happy and and the way we manifest those emotions could be very different and give it so i guess there's a very long-winded answer um, of saying that it's difficult to assess emotions and so i'm always leery of saying animals are happy or depressed in any situation until i see a lot of behavioral data of some sort and it can be whatever data people can agree upon um, i don't think there's one type of data that that is the best uh, to make those determinations and i think what we're lacking now is that sort of behavioral information what what does animal a do that that allows us to reliably and, and validly say the animal is an emotional state a, B, C, or D, okay? And that might be very different from what animal B and C and D do. And we need to start looking at that, but it's, it's tough. Next generation of scientists, I hope, will do that. Regarding animals in captivity, I asked Dr. Kujai if he thought this was ethical. It's a, it's a tough question. I mean, and part of the problem, I think, with the debate that's going on is that it's, in, in some cases, very much a religious argument. People have very strong opinions on both sides and don't necessarily listen well to each other. Um, I am not really anti-captivity or pro-captivity. Um, Anti-bad captivity, regardless of the species, I think we have an obligation if we're going to have animals in captivity to give them the very best possible environment that we can and take the best care of them that we can. And places that don't do that shouldn't have captive animals. Um, on the other hand, I, I, I know that there are places, and I'll use dolphins as an example, which um, have captive dolphins in which the animals are given very good care. They're, they're allowed to um, establish their own social groups. Um, they are allowed to breed and raise offspring. And they're basically allowed to be dolphins. And, and, and I wish that more places were like that in which the public could come and see dolphins being dolphins. And that, uh, now that's not really an ethical question, that's more of a personal thing on my part, but, but ethics, the ethics part of it I think is really one of just doing what's right for the animals. And that's, we're all gonna have different opinions about that unfortunately. That's all we have time for today and thank you for listening. If you'd like to watch Stan's complete interview or other scientists HP interviews, then please visit aquaticmammalsjournal.org and click on the Historical Perspectives tab near the top.